0: So I'll read Luke 2, verses 41 to 52 for us. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances when they did not find him they returned to jerusalem searching for him after three days they found him in the temple sitting among the teachers listening to them and asking them questions all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers and when his parents saw him they were astonished and his mother said to him son why have you treated us so behold Amen. Let me pray for us. And then we'll go into this message. God, we thank you so much for giving us this time. And I pray that as we look into this story, that you would speak to us about the power of faith and that you would give us a heart to really search for you and come to realize who you are. We thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. So a couple of Christmases ago, I noticed that there was a a subtle shift going on in my own heart. When the movie Home Alone first came out, I related most to the boy uh, Macaulay Culkin, to Kevin McAllister. I thought he was funny. I thought he was cute. He was putting aftershave on his face. He was going grocery shopping and he was able to foil robbers with micro-machines and a blowtorch. But the last time I saw this movie, and I saw what Kevin was really like, I was like, this kid is a brat. He keeps saying all these nasty things to his parents. He wishes they didn't exist. And I was like, dude, this, this guy is not good at all. And I started to relate more to his mom, who was like, you better not say that, or you better not talk like that. And then during the whole movie, I could care less about the robbers trying to get to Kevin. I'm kind of like, he deserves it. But I related more to the mom who is like, I got to get home to Chicago and find my boy. And the reason I mentioned that is that's the same reaction I had when I read Luke 2. The first couple of times I read it, I was impressed by this boy who is asking all these questions from these rabbis and giving all these wonderful answers. But the last time I read it, I was like, man, Mary and Joseph must have been super worried because he was missing for about four days and I imagine how embarrassed they must have felt when they first realized that he was missing so they go a whole day away from Jerusalem probably traveling about 30 miles and then after a whole day and night they realize he's not there and then they have to go to their friends and relatives and be like um hey Elizabeth have you seen Jesus and they're like no when's the last time you saw him Uh, yesterday. (laughs) Yesterday, like a night and a day ago? Yeah. Wait, weren't we in the city yesterday? Uh, Yeah. So you're telling me you lost your boy, your only son in the city, and now you're 33 miles away? Yes. And when I read this story, I related most to that struggle. This is a parent's worst nightmare. I get nervous when I see Arlo get into the elevator by herself in the lobby and I'm like, wait, 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 stop the elevator. I'll be right there. For four days, Jesus is missing and no one had seen them. Now this, as I mentioned, is probably a parent's worst nightmare, but that's not how this trip started. This trip started the way all nightmares start with a calm, peaceful, picturesque beginning. So what do we know about this trip? This trip starts in verse 41. And it tells us that Mary and Joseph are taking Jesus on their annual family vacation. Now, many of us probably took similar trips when we were growing up. Every summer when I was a kid, me, my brother, my two sisters, and my parents would pile into a minivan and drive from Massachusetts to Maryland or Maryland to Massachusetts. And because of my dad's uh, weirdness, we always did it in the dead of night. He would wake us up at like 12 o'clock at night and say, we are not going to be stuck in traffic, (laughs) get in the car. And he would never stop to let us use the bathroom because there's six of us. So if he did that every 15 minutes, one of us would be like, I gotta go potty, I gotta go potty. So he's like, forget it. And we would fight every time we stopped and we would say, I called shotgun, I'm sitting in the front. And then we would get into it. I remember this one time, my dad was going super, super fast and he got pulled over by the cops. And you know, he had a pretty good sense of humor. So the first time we were all laughing and joking, saying, oh dad, you're so fast. You're such a speed demon. 20 minutes later, he gets pulled over again on the same road, speeding. This time no one's laughing because he's mad, really mad. And this is the same kind of trip that Jesus was taking. Every year they're going on a family trip and he's probably seeing different sides of his parents and he's starting to see the world differently. But he's not just going for vacation. Verse 41 and 42 tells us that he's going for Passover. So what is Passover? Passover is one of the most important feasts in the Old Testament. It commemorates how God rescued his people out of slavery from the land of Egypt using 10 plagues. When Israel first went into Egypt, they were invited in as guests. But over the course of 400 years, as they multiplied, they became a threat and they became enslaved and they had to work in the hot desert sun, building grand stone monuments to the pharaohs. And they cried out to God, generation after generation, save us and save us. And eventually God heard their cry and he sent Moses and he did 10 incredible acts to get Israel outside of Egypt. And the 10th one was the worst. Pharaoh would not let Israel go. So God sent Moses to tell him, this is the last thing I'm going to do. This very night, every firstborn person, every firstborn animal will be wiped out. And at this point, Pharaoh should have relented. He had seen God do incredible things. He'd seen God turn water into blood. He had seen God make the sky turn dark for entire days. But still, he was stubborn and said, I will not let them go. So that very night, God kept his promise and every firstborn whether it was a human or whether it was an animal was wiped out. And Exodus 12 30 tells us that a great cry was heard in Egypt that night. But even though this is an awful thing for Egypt, a miracle also happened. The plague did not affect the Israelites because God told them how to avoid it. He told each family, take a lamb, slaughter it and paint the blood onto your door. And this will be a sign to the angel of death that this house belongs to god and when that happened the angel of death passed over hence the name passover and all of israel was saved and eventually all the jews were allowed to escape egypt now jesus had made this trip every single year and he had gone to jerusalem every single year and he had probably heard this story a hundred times but for some reason this year this time this story this feast had a deep impact on his soul and i think a part of this had to do with his age verse 42 tells us that jesus was 12 years old 12 is a really strange age in the ancient world many biographies of great men talk about something that happened to them when they were 12 speaking of 12 um, Solomon, for example, probably heard God speak to him and became king at the age of 12. Samuel probably heard God speak to him at the age of 12 and said, here I am, Lord, what is it that you want? Even in Jewish custom, rabbis said 12 is the age that you're about to become a man. So if you make a vow to God, you have to honor it. If you're 12, you can start fasting for an entire day. So 12 is the in-between age. And even now, 12 is a strange age. I teach middle schoolers. And seventh grade, I will tell you by far, is the strangest year because hormones are surging and puberty has arrived. And these guys, when they come in, are still kids. All these guys are doing dumb, stupid things to make each other laugh. All the girls are getting caught up in drama about that girl has the same hairpin as I have. Oh my God, she knew I had it. I can't believe she bought it. And I'm kind of like, grow up get a serious life get a serious problem but by the time they're exiting they are serious because they know eighth grade is the year that counts and if they want to go to high school they better be an adult and so a transformation happens at the age of 12. in Luke chapter 2 Jesus is 12 he's still a child but he's almost a man and that moment he decides I need to take my relationship with God seriously And like most 12-year-olds, even though he's a son of God, he takes this desire and he does something foolish. He says, you know what? Instead of going back home with my parents, I'm going to stay in the city and hang out in the temple. This is typical 12-year-old behavior. He is starting to think like an adult, but his decisions are still not wise. So he decides to stay, and this is the start of Mary and Joseph's worst nightmare— a missing child. And as you know, they searched for him for four days. And during that time, I'm sure there was lots of fighting. Joseph, how could you let this happen? Where were you? And Joseph said, me, I watched him on the way down. You're supposed to watch him on the way up. Or they probably knew at this point that Jesus is the Messiah. So at some point they're like, oh no, We lost the Messiah. We lost the Savior of the world. If God calls and said, hey, where's my son? What are we going to tell him? We lost him. And they probably could not help but wonder over the course of four days, where is he and what is he doing? And verse 46 tells us that through it all, Jesus is a good kid. He's not off doing crazy things. He's spending time in the temple, listening to the law, and listening to the teachers and asking questions what is he doing he is listening and he is questioning when our church first started 10 years ago we had a nickname and it was called good times church because most people were single and ready to mingle and to put it um euphemistically we enjoyed city life nightly but now when you look around It's not Good Times Church. It's a little kid's church. There's so many kids here, over there. And do you know what these kids are doing? Do you know what's going on with them? They are listening, and they are questioning. They are watching us and hearing the way that we act and hearing the things that we say, and questions are starting to come in their mind. As I mentioned, I teach middle schoolers, and one of the classes I teach is Bible. And at the beginning of every year, I ask these sixth graders to write down some of the questions that they have about church, about God, about faith. And as you'd expect, some of the questions are pretty childish, pretty dumb. Why did God create mosquitoes? Where are dinosaurs explained in the Bible? Can Jesus speak English? But then there are questions from sixth graders that show a deeper side of life. How do I know that God is real? How can God be three persons in one? How do you know when you hear a voice if it's God's or someone else's? How come when I pray for something, like my sickness to go away, God does not answer? Sixth grade. So our kids have been listening for a long time. And now they're starting to ask questions about the deep things of life. And Jesus, though he is the son of God, was a boy. And he went through puberty and he asked these same types of questions. And he suddenly had this profound realization on this family trip celebrating the Passover, and this realization shocked Mary and Joseph more than his sudden disappearance. We know from these verses that Mary and Joseph had been in Jerusalem searching for three days. They finally found him in the temple, and you can hear the emotion and the release of exasperation in the first words that they say to him, son, why did you treat us like this? We've been looking for you in great distress. And in response, Jesus said something surprising. He didn't say, oh, sorry, or, oh, I forgot. He said, why were you looking for me? What? (laughs) If Arlo said that at 12, after being missing for four days, there'd be problems. (laughs) But he goes on, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? What a strange thing to say to your parents especially when they're mad at you, especially after they've been looking for you for four days. And it was so strange that Luke tells us that they had no idea what he was talking about. What does he mean? I needed to be in my father's house. All of us are in a strange position in relation to this story because we know how it goes because of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We know that we've been adopted into God's family and God is our father We know because of the Gospels that Jesus is God's only begotten son, that he is a second person of the Trinity. But right at this moment when Jesus is 12, Mary and Joseph don't know any of that. They have this big promise that Jesus will do something great for the people of Israel. But they don't fully understand what that means. So what does it mean when Jesus said, I had to be in my father's house? Later in Luke, after Jesus has grown up, and reflected on these things, and questioned, and listened, and questioned, and listened, he tells us exactly what it means. He tells us that he is God's son in a special way, in a unique way, and we can only really know who God our father is through him. And it's an excellent point to make. Nobody really related to God as a father before that. What would he be like? Would he be strict? Would he be disciplinarian? Would he have a curfew on you? Would he yell at you when you do something wrong? And throughout, look, this picture unfolds of who God our Father is because of the way Jesus talks about him. And it's a very comforting picture. It's a very humbling picture. God is not angry. He's not judgmental. He is not a disciplinarian. He's a Father who, when we ask him for something, he gives us good gifts. He is patient with us. He reaches out to us, and he's forgiving. Probably in the most famous story in the Gospels, the prodigal son, Jesus tells us that God is a Father stands out on the horizon looking for his lost children to come home and when he sees them even though they've left under bad circumstances it says he's filled with compassion and he runs God the creator almighty all powerful girds up his loins and runs to his children and we would not know any of this about who God our father is if Jesus at the age of 12 did not have this realization I had to be in my father's house mary and joseph at the heart of this story is something profound that god is our father but the surrounding tissue of it is a nightmare a parent's worst nightmare my child is missing where did he go we left him in the city and at the heart of this jesus tells them something wonderful he tells them, god is my father and he is our father and even though they did not understand it at the moment in verse 51 it tells us that mary after seeing all that Jesus had done, reflecting on this later in her life, says she treasured up all of these things in her heart. Her nightmare, the story that she would tell to her friends. Oh, God, I can't believe this about my son. Can you? Believe, have your son ever done this? After all of this stuff that she went through, at the heart of it, she realized, oh, my goodness, this nightmare turned into a treasure because this is how my son realized who he truly was. He was God's son. So this year, I gave my sixth graders an assignment, and I asked them to write an answer to the question, who is Jesus to me? And what is your relationship to Jesus? And there's this girl in my class, and one word I would use to describe her is, she's saucy. She's saucy. So when I'll say, hey, how are you doing? She'll say, none of your business. And I'm like, okay. (laughs) So I was surprised by her answer. Quoted verbatim. Jesus, to me, is a loving light who sees through every trick and lie. He seems to tell me to stop having a pity party and to tell the truth. Sometimes I get swept up in my own problems, and when this happens, I usually forget about it. But I come back to him If it's not too soon, or if it is too soon, then I come back a little later. And when my friends, they're mean to me, I pray and ask God for help. And sometimes I think he should be like this magical being who grants my wishes upon request. I sometimes think maybe God really isn't there to catch me when I fall. He doesn't seem to save me when I fall down to the very pit of despair. He doesn't seem to care that darkness is affecting me. Then he calls me and I'm glad to hear his voice. I take his hand as he helps me rise out of this dark pit. And even as I write these words, God's very hand seems to touch my shoulder. His voice fills my mind and I smile. So I said, Hey, this was so good. I really liked it. And then she went, thanks. <laughs> All right. Let me pray for us. Dear God, we just thank you so much for uh, giving us this time. Thank you for uh, a cold day that turned out pretty nice. And we thank you for this. And uh, I guess the most appropriate thing to pray for is to pray for these kids, our kids, they are getting to a place where they're listening and questioning and they have deep questions about who you are. And I pray that just as Christ was able to realize something profound about who you were in relation to him, they would see that you are their father. They would know that because of you, because of your sacrifice, because of what you did for them on the cross, they are not alone in this world, but they have something great. They have powerful hope. And that when they need you and they call out to you, you'll be there to hear them. We thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.